You're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Rights Pod. So for this week's episode of The Rights Pod, I handed it over to two of our human rights students, Alicia Zhao and Chloe Studdard. They sat down with Dr. Adam Kachansky, who's a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University's Center for International Peace and Security Studies. Adam received his PhD in political science from the University of Ottawa, and he was formerly a postdoc at the Center for Human Rights and International Justice here at Stanford, where he's still a research fellow. Adam's research focuses on transitional justice, and he recently wrote an article in the San Francisco Chronicle called How a Truth and Reconciliation Commission Could Work in the United States. Alicia and Chloe asked Adam about his work in transitional justice and how he thinks about applying those principles to the history of racial injustice and oppression in the United States. If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. Hi everyone, this is Alicia, a human rights minor and student worker at the Center. And my name is Chloe and I am another human rights minor and rising senior. And today we're so excited to have Adam Kachansky with us, who is a research fellow at Stanford Center for Human Rights and International Justice and a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University Center for International Peace and Security Studies in Montreal. His research focuses on transitional injustice, post-conflict peacebuilding, and international norms. Thank you, Adam, for being here with us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I guess our first question for you is, what inspired you to pursue research on transitional justice processes? So over the course of my master's, I developed an interest in peace building. And specifically, I wanted to understand why top-down international level approaches to dilemmas of post-conflict reconstruction weren't hitting the mark. And through this roundabout exploration of the peace-building literature, I stumbled upon transitional justice and questions specifically relating to the ways that countries that have had war or have had a dictatorship, how they deal with their legacy of past violence. And then, of course, there's also personal note where my parents uh, left Poland uh, at a time when that country was under Soviet rule and left for Canada. So there really is as well a personal story in terms of my interest in transitional justice and in wanting to know about the truth and also how perpetrators of historical injustices and of past crimes can be held to account. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, Before we delve into some more questions for context for our listeners, do you mind um, explaining a little bit about what exactly truth and reconciliation commissions are and what they were first designated for and designed for? Yeah, so a truth commission 
is a type of temporary institution that is set up by a state to examine a legacy of human rights violations, usually over a period of time. And this inquiry at the end, it's expected to release a report and then as well to propose different types of recommendations. And this is all with an idea of sort of never again and preventing these crimes from happening in the future. Um, the first truth commissions were established in the early 1980s, mostly in countries in Latin America that were undergoing transitions from authoritarian rule to democracy. It later became popularized with the landmark South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then towards the late 90s and into the 2000s, we saw a number of Truth and Reconciliation Commissions also being established increasingly in contexts that were transitioning from war to peace. And also in a number of consolidated democracies as well, such as here in Canada. Um, in total, there have been over 40 such commissions that have been established worldwide. And most recently, a truth commission process was suggested in the United States, uh, specifically relating to uh, racial injustice and that country's historical legacy of slavery. Yeah, going off of that, in your article published in the SF Chronicle, you talk about how a truth commission could work in the US. Could you talk about this vision and how it connects to the racial justice movement? Yeah, very much so. So Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's a Democrat and a representative for Oakland, at the beginning of June, proposed a Truth Commission for the United States, uh, specifically a National Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. And the goal of such a Truth Commission would be to look at the historical legacy of slavery in the United States, uh, to delve into how this legacy has shaped structural injustices over time, specifically relating to African-American communities, but also other BIPOC communities, and to think about ways how these structural injustices could be removed. So of course, with the killing of, of George Floyd on May 25th and the ensuing protests and demonstrations that swept across the nation for weeks. Uh, there was a lot of discussion around what types of mechanisms, what kind of processes could be adopted here in the United States as a form of transitional justice to deal with its own legacy of violence. And one of the ideas that were proposed was this, this, this truth commission. And in reading the legislation, what Congresswoman Lee proposes is very ambitious. Um, what's interesting to note is um, this discussion of transformation and uh, the, the, the transformative goal of, of, of the, the inquiry that she's proposing. We can talk about that a little bit later. But I did want to mention that the United States is particularly ripe for a truth commission at this time because it does have some history with regards to the establishment of these types of bodies in the country. 
1980, uh, there was a Congressional Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. And this was actually, it's a fairly understudied and not too often discussed commission in the transitional justice literature. But it was a very successful commission that actually resulted in uh, an apology for those who were interned in, those Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, and also in reparations. And then there have been also a number of unofficial truth projects. So uh, truth-telling processes that weren't sanctioned, weren't weren't, uh, led by the federal government, but were either initiated by states or at the local level. So there have been two such uh, state truth-telling projects in Maine, that one dealing with uh, issues affecting indigenous nations in that state, and then another one as well in Maryland, dealing with racial terror lynchings. And then there have been two local level uh, truth commission processes as well, one in Greensboro, North Carolina, and then the other in Charlottesville, Virginia. And both of those truth and reconciliation commissions, they've borrowed language from the the South African process, but they've specifically uh, looked at racially motivated incidents that involve the Ku Klux Klan. So really, there is a very rich uh, and often not talked about historical legacy of of such uh, bodies in the United States and many historical precedents. And given uh, the momentum, the discussion around uh, structural injustices with regards to African-American communities that were sparked by the killing of George Floyd, really uh, this this opened up uh, the the opportunity to have a discussion about transitional justice in the United States and specifically about the possibility that a that a truth commission could work here um, in your article, you also emphasize that um, truth commissions have taken on many different approaches um, and so prioritizing aims other than forgiveness and reconciliation which were key, um, key to the South Africa's approach, which kind of approach do you see the U.S. taking more in terms of like reparations and structural changes and considering the demands of, of the organizers of the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, how do you imagine that looking potentially unique to the United States, given your, your research and your context? So I think that's a really great question, Chloe. And um being very mindful of my own positionality as a white male. Um, I'm always very reluctant to offer prescriptions and specifically prescriptions with regards to how uh, a truth commission process could could look like in the United States uh, to specifically address racial injustice. Um, So really in terms of thinking through how a truth commission could work in the United States begins with with listening to activist demands and as well to speaking with different grassroots organizations that are working in this area and to get a sense of what their specific needs, what their specific demands and what their specific priorities are for such a process and whether such a process is even desired and, and 
in the US context to deal with these issues. Um, so before maybe I continue with that point, I would like to take a little bit of a step back and just talk a little bit about the way that truth commissions have been designed over time, because I think that this genealogy of the mechanism is important. So in the 80s, I had mentioned that there were these uh, commissions that were established in Latin America. And many of these truth commissions, these early truth commissions, they had very narrow mandates. So they were set up to examine a fairly narrow scope of crimes, to investigate them, and then to report on, on, on what types of abuses, what forms of abuses took place. Um, they didn't really have a sort of reconciliatory agenda. That only really shifted with the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was formed in a very specific context after the end of apartheid there, where Nelson Mandela was attempting to heal a deeply divided society where all sides had committed different types of crimes. Um, and he was thinking about how he could unite a nation. Um, and the Truth and Recon Reconciliation Commission became a very integral part of this process. It was a very public commission. Uh, victims took part in very highly publicized and broadcast hearings uh, where they testified before the panel. At times, they would confront their perpetrators uh, directly at these hearings, and they would tell their story. So it was a very victim-centered mechanism in that respect. And as well at times, um, in, in return for their testimony, if the person had committed different types of crimes, they could be awarded a conditional amnesty uh, for their participation in the commission as a form of reconciliation, but then as well as a form of getting all the different sides of the story in order to be able to craft this sort of national narrative, national truth of, of what happened so that it, those mistakes could not be repeated again. And after, so the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was kind of a tipping point where after it, we started to see this language of TRCs as opposed to these more narrow commissions that you saw in Latin America being borrowed increasingly when truth commissions were established elsewhere. And at times this was for uh, completely uh, well-intentioned means and purposes. But at other times, truth commissions were seen as being a sort of uh, lesser evil. So countries where abusive governments want us to deal with the past, uh, they would choose a truth commission model because they saw it as being a lesser evil than, say, holding prosecutions because they were cognizant of the fact that they might be implicated in these trials. And we've seen that in uh, contexts like the Ivory Coast or in Kenya or most recently in in Sri Lanka as well. Um, so all this to say, uh, if we look at the use of truth commissions over time, it's important to note, as you mentioned, that the TRC model is only one different one, uh, is only one, one specific model. 
And it's important to be open to the range of different types of truth commission designs that are out there in thinking about what such a process might look like in the States. And it does begin with, with listening and speaking to activists because it's possible that African-American communities aren't, aren't willing or aren't ready or don't want reconciliation right now. And it's possible that a TRC in the United States context might hinge on, the R might hinge on something like reparations or reforms of key institutions such as the police as opposed to reconciliation right now. So really, um, in terms of what such a process could or should look like, it doesn't begin with experts. It definitely doesn't begin with uh, white male scholars um, or other uh, white people in positions of power dictating the terms of such a commission, but it does, it needs to be led from the bottom up and key constituencies, key stakeholders uh, in the African-American community uh, need to uh, both uh, validate the idea that a truth commission is necessary and then as well uh, dictate, uh, suggest what such a process should look like. And, and my role as a researcher and as someone who has studied truth commissions at length is to, is to bubble to listen and then to, uh, based, based on the best practices of different countries, to suggest uh, what has worked elsewhere and, and, and how it could work in the United States context. And what I have heard in speaking to different types of, uh, of activists is that, that this demand for reforms and for reparations is, is, is very real. So I'm going to leave it at that for now. Awesome. Well, thank you for such a thoughtful answer. And I'm glad to hear that there's like just so much awareness around our positionality as we think about these things as well. I think that this is a really, you know, interesting case for a lot of reasons. Um, but one thing that's so um, particular to the United States and I guess um, right now and its history is how divided politics are right now in the mm -hmm. country. It's not the first time, but it, it's definitely um, unprecedented in a lot of ways. And I'm curious if, you know, from maybe some of your research, if there's been any other circumstances where that's posed an issue or how you imagine that the, the dividedness of this country of not seeing this as necessarily, um, you know, just some that are refusing to admit this really long-term racial injustice and inequity in this country and how that really comes down to, you know, somewhat lot, a lot of times to party lines and how that could, you know, affect the possibility of either a truth commission or even, um, you know, trying to meet those demands for um, Black Lives Matter um, organizers. Yeah, so I think that that is the question. Um, it, it is the question that everybody should be asking. And that has given me a lot of pause actually about uh, whether a, a truth commission could work in the U.S. context, given how politicized and polarized the political landscape is currently, and also the divisiveness that has been sowed um, over the course of the last over the last six weeks, and 
again, coming back to the definition of a truth commission, a, a truth commission technically is state sanctioned. It is uh, a process that is, is led by the government. And the reason why the concept of a truth commission has given me pause in the United States context is that I've observed in other cases, and I had mentioned Kenya, I had mentioned Cote d'Ivoire as well in Sri Lanka, where a truth commission process was led for political reasons as opposed to principled reasons. In the Kenyan case, it was uh, adopted as an alternative to ICC indictments against the government. And in Sri Lanka, it was promoted because there was a lot of international pressure for uh, a, a special or a hybrid tribunal to prosecute uh, Sri Lankan officials. And I worry quite a bit, given the, the, uh, the, the state of political affairs in the United States and the way that uh, this specific issue has been politicized, specifically at the executive branch, that if a process was led by the executive in the United States, uh, that it could become hijacked and politicized and used in order to uh, whitewash this history as opposed to um, create a venue where, where victims, where descendants of slaves could tell their stories and, and, and write their story and that the story could be dictated from above. So given these political realities at the moment, um, there's a need to be cautious and to be prudent about who should be, who should be initiating this process and leading this process. And I certainly think that Congress is one avenue. And again, there is historical precedent of this with the Congressional Commission on Wartime Relocation and, and Internment. And that certainly provides one promising avenue for a state level process. But if that political climate can't be guaranteed, it may be better to lay the groundwork for a national truth commission process now and to translate the current momentum into localized grassroots smaller activist less ambitious activist led commissions that could lay the groundwork um, build forge different types of uh of of partnerships and collaborations with with white allies in order to lay the groundwork for a national process down the line. Because the absolute worst thing that could happen is, again, for such a process to become compromised, to become politicized, and to uh, not only disappoint, but potentially even re-traumatize uh, some African uh, Americans, um, as opposed to productively deal with this specific issue. So there's a need to be really careful uh, because the, the truth and, and, and collective memory and, 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 and history are, are, can be so powerful. And truth commissions in particular can play a very 
influential and lasting role in in crafting a a, a legacy, a, a, a historical legacy account of the past, and um, it would be doing a a great disservice would be done if if uh, if 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 this history if if these truths were were whitewashed in some way. Thank you for that thoughtful answer. I have a question about um, kind of the accountability that comes with truth commissions. Of it seems like listening is central to truth commissions and kind of just discovering this truth from this process. But in looking at, for example, an approach that focuses on reparations, how can the governing body of a truth commission ensure that not only are victims heard, but also their requests are taken into consideration and actually implemented? So truth commissions are, are led by uh, typically esteemed individuals, uh, dignitaries in, in society who have fairly high moral authority. Um, in the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, everyone, of course, they uh, think of the personality of Desmond Tutu in that specific process. So the the idea is that in selecting these these commissioners uh, who proceed over over the hearings and over the collection of of the truths, and ultimately they weigh the evidence that has been collected, that they will be able to, to the best of their ability, because uh, there isn't ever one truth, but to the best of their ability, put forward a sort of neutral historical account of what happened that they'll be able to take into consideration and, and weigh and counterweigh all of the different types of testimonies that they have received, but also the different types of demands to uh, ultimately submit in proposing their recommendations uh, an, an aggregate of, of what has been heard, of what has been voiced, of, of, of what has been suggested over a, a truth commission process. And then once that report is submitted, uh, really it does at that point fall on the different levels of government uh, to which these recommendations are made to uh, go over them and to to implement them. And there is a significant, unfortunately, implementation gap in terms of what commissions have proposed and what has actually been done. And an interesting example with regards to this is, you know, often truth commissions, they're established in, in in a fragile context in countries that have emerged from civil war. And it's presumed that they might not be able to implement all of these lofty goals in uh, the immediate aftermath of a conflict. But even in places like Canada uh, here, um, the government has fallen short on, on, on delivering on some of the recommendations that have been made. So the commissioners have to take that into account as well um, in terms of either uh, proposing an agenda 
that sets the bar extremely high with hope that some of the more ambitious goals will be followed through on uh, versus balancing that against perhaps more modest but achievable recommendations in order to avoid disappointing the victims who have uh, opened themselves up to this process and and risked uh, re-traumatization as well. Switching gears a little bit, and one of our last questions is, um, you know, and you can kind of zoom in or zoom out with this question as well, but why do you think that restorative justice practices and transformative justice practices as well um, are important, and especially if you would like to talk about in the context of the U.S. or, you know, in different um, different spaces and opportunities throughout history that it's um, proven useful or, you know, different challenges that have been encountered with it, um, just as it's become a lot more talked about in the media and just um, in social change circles as well. I think when it comes to when it comes to dilemmas of of justice and specifically transitional justice, I always start by thinking about what specifically justice looks like for the affected community and what their conception of justice is. Um, in some places, justice might not be restorative. Um, it might be retributive. There might be a healing might mean that people want to see perpetrators held to account and brought to trial, prosecuted, and to serve time in prison for the crimes that they committed. In other contexts, uh, there might be more of a restorative conception of justice where an apology goes a long way where either uh, symbolic reparations some form of monetary compensation for past harms in a mass crimes context are meaningful um, so really answering the question of of, of transitional justice for me it, it becomes it, it begins with the conception of justice for the victim and what that is. Um, in this specific context, I've heard various uh, articulations of what that justice is. Some activists, they want, they want punitive justice. They want to see uh, the law enforcement officials who either killed George Floyd or some of the others to be arrested and to be charged with crimes and prosecuted and to be brought to trial. Um, other activists, they highlight the long historical injustices that we have witnessed in American society calling for uh, historical reparations. Uh, others, they have called for more immediate action that uh, will be seen in communities right now, such as reforms to uh, either the education sector or to um, the uh, police uh, police institutions around the country. So 
so really the in terms of of the types of of justices that 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 we can see in the states or that are needed in the states they they begin with with uh, again uh, activists specific demands and articulations for for justice with regards to transformation um, because this conception of of transformative justice has also been raised by by not only activists but it is also in the name of the commission that Barbara Lee suggests. And I think that it's really important because the way that transitional justice as a field came to being, uh, it reflects a very specific wielding of, of power. Uh, transitional justice as a field, it came into being in the late 1980s as a set of practices that could be applied to non-democratic countries that were undergoing a transition, uh, in that case from dictatorship to democratic rule, and then later from war to peace. And it wasn't associated as uh, something that, that should or could be applied in, in established democracies. And that's why for many years, nobody had talked about the different types of commissions that were used in the States or the different types of, of historical injustices or transitional justice processes that uh, very much were relevant to contexts uh, ranging from the United States to Australia, to Canada, to, to Europe. And that's why this, this notion of transformative justice is is particularly pertinent to, to democratic contexts and the United States. Because while transitional justice views democracy as being the endpoint of these different tools that are being applied, that a truth commission will be this democratizing process, that appears to be already be the case in, in consolidated democracies. So but these countries are still in transition. So the end goal is something else, and it's that transformation. It's the transformation of race relations, of different types of structural injustices that date back to uh, legacies of slavery in the country, um, to different types of different forms of marginalization, of uh, gender-based, of class-based, of race-based injustices over time. So what's really interesting, and I think what's also uh, potentially critical with regards to the, the transitional justice process in the United States is that um, it, it holds the potential to not only uh, lead to a transformation of, of U.S. society itself, but also a transformation of the transitional justice field, too. When you're speaking of it's in the community's decision to decide what justice will look like, I guess my question is, what happens when victims of the same community have different conceptions of what justice looks like for them. So I guess the example I'm thinking of is 
Um, under the Truth Commissions after apartheid, South Africans had different conceptions of what justice looks like in regards to Eugene de Kock. Of some mm-hmm. believe that he should continue to be imprisoned for life, while others believe that justice would be releasing him from prison and allowing him to have a second chance. Um, so yeah, I guess I was just curious what happens when people have different conceptions of justice and how can we reconcile that? It's definitely one of the dilemmas with regards to any sort of truth-seeking approach because on the one hand, uh, justice is imperfect and it isn't always universal. And um, both political leadership, but specifically uh, commissioners, they play a very key role in, again, navigating all of the different demands for justice. And one of the realities of any truth commission process is that it will not satisfy everyone. But the ambition should be to uh, meet the, the needs of as many victims as possible. So really, again, the commissioners, they play a very important role in, in navigating all of these different types of complexities and also contradictions that emerge. And one of the realities is that unfortunately in a sort of national level process that uh, it is guaranteed that not everybody's uh, demands will be met. And um, that is also why, for example, one prudent approach, especially in in the short term, given the political landscape in the United States right now, is that uh, a variety of different types of grassroots and locally led processes might be able to meet these these types of demands on a more um, on a on a more localized basis and respond to the different priorities that are articulated by specific groups. However, the the risk in such a fragmented process is that uh, it's possible that a more coherent and cohesive picture um, might not emerge from that. So really, uh, it's very much a a question of, of scales. But at the same time, while justice, there isn't a universal justice that is representative of all victims, there also isn't a universal truth. Uh, truth isn't monolithic. Um, many truths might uh, emerge with regards to a specific event, let alone, uh, in this case, a history that dates over 400 years. So um, that is one of one of the complexities with regards to a truth process is that it should strive to be as representative as possible, but uh, in terms of an idealized goal of, of, of delivering a justice or a truth uh, or a form of reparations that is responsive to everyone, um, it's simply not feasible. Um, so the goal should be to try to meet as many of those demands as possible uh, while at the same time avoiding widespread disappointment and falling totally short. Another question is, um, how do you think that instituting a U.S. Truth Commission could potentially change um, the U.S.'s 
positionality in the international human rights system? And could there be pushback on this? I'm just very curious about this because there seems to be a lot of um, impunity for the United States when it comes to um, internal and external human rights abuses. And um, that this concept hasn't really been explored um, at a federal level to it being something that's being proposed in Congress. So now that this is happening, um, do you think that this could be something that people are worried about? Um, and, and if so, you know, how could that affect this going forward? I would say that, that with regards to the way that a national level process could, could bolster the United States reputation abroad, um, I think that many, many, many places would definitely welcome such a process. And there's definitely uh, one of the things about the, 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 the killing of George Floyd is that it not only prompted this sort of process of uh, introspection in the United States, but also in various other contexts around the world with regards to um, either their own histories with regards to slavery, with regards to colonialism, and all of these different types of, of, of historical and as well structural injustices. So I think, um, I know in speaking to not only my Canadian colleagues, but also colleagues abroad, um, taking this first step towards dealing with this, this past, in the United States would send a very strong message to the international community that uh, that this is important and that actually the the United States is is uh, following the lead of, of of other countries who have attempted to address historical injustices and is now doing the same. So there is actually a possibility that the United States could play a leadership role and that a uh, national commission in the United States could be the first of uh, many commissions that are set up around the world to deal with this specific set of issues. The other point that, I, that, that you made, which I think is very interesting, is that yes, the, uh, with regards to certain international criminal justice institutions, um, the the United States and some Western countries as well, they have been criticized for using to, uh, institutions such as the International Criminal Court as a tool, again, that is directed towards the transitioning uh, South-based countries in, that are that are in a state of of development, and we've seen a lot of pushback actually in many African contexts um, with regards to the International Criminal Court, which has disproportionately open cases on the continent, um, but as well in 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 south-based countries. And African leaders have highlighted this, and they've noted the the hypocrisy with regards to um, whether it's the United States or other countries' human rights records in specific contexts. Um, so, again, this dovetails a little bit on the point with regards to 
uh, how the field has been constructed and who the objects and subject, subjects of, of transitional justice processes are. And by dealing with its own past in, in this way through a truth commission process, the United States does have an opportunity. It does have a, a it presents the chance that it, it might break with this, uh, this, this pattern of, of hypocrisy and, um, and, and demonstrate to the world that, that it too has its own injustices and is, is doing something to deal with them. And it might actually bolster the, the credibility and legitimacy of, of the transitional justice project more generally around the world. Uh, I think that would be awesome. And I think it also addresses U.S. exceptionalism in a lot of ways as well. Yes, we have one last question for you, and it's what is one big takeaway or action item that you want to give our audience from this discussion that we've had? So one takeaway that I want to give is that it's important to capitalize on the current momentum and to translate that into meaningful action. But at the same time, this needs to be balanced with the political realities and the political landscape that we see in the United States. And what I want to say is that truth commissions are one tool, and they are imperfect. And at times I've been skeptical of them in some contexts because they do involve very careful considerations and delicate trade-offs in order to make them fit to the specific context. But I'm a firm believer that reckoning with the past and acknowledging that past injustices took place is a very necessary first step to meaningful change and as well to moving forward. So a truth commission process in the United States, above all, it begins with, with listening and to thinking through what the specific demands are and whether such a mechanism is desired, and then if so, on the basis of that, to move forward. Thank you so much again to Adam and our hosts, Alicia and Chloe, for this discussion about transitional justice in the United States and what that can look like. For more resources, be sure to check out our show's show notes. We'll post a link to Adam's article and previous research, as well as other resources that might interest you about transitional justice and how it can be applied in the United States. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.